Well, kids, um, you get to stay here. <laughs> this actually was messy church week, and so um, so you are hanging out, which is good. It is it's good, and I'm going to tell you why. Because I need I need the children's participation. So, Caden, you ready to participate? I need you to make noises for me today, okay? Can you do that? He's like, ah, no, I'm supposed to make noises. I don't know if I can. Um, all right, I will tell you what noises to make, and I'll help you know when to make them. All right, Miguel? Yeah? Yeah? All right, good. All right, our text this morning, our gospel reading. Cammie, thank you, by the way, again. Um, the the uh, Nehemiah 8 is no joke. Those are some real names, especially Hash Badadana. I don't know what know what that one was. But our gospel reading is from Luke chapter 4, beginning in verse 14 and down through verse 21. And Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee, and a report about him went out through all the surrounding country. And he taught in their synagogues, being glorified by all. And he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the, recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, um, a, a lot of you guys may know, um, we'll get to a very brief history of Israel in just a moment here, uh, but um, a lot of you may know Jesus is born of a woman. Her name is Mary. And, uh, and then he comes up and grows up a little bit and uh, goes to Jerusalem and is in a temple at one point. He ditches his parents um, and when he's about 12 years old. And then his parents go and find him. They bring him back. And the next thing we see of Jesus, he is getting baptized by his cousin John in the River Jordan, immediately leaves that baptism goes into the wilderness for 40 days where he fasts and is tempted by the devil, okay? He comes out of that wilderness, and this is the first we see of him. This is the first public act of Jesus' ministry. All the other stuff has kind of been preparation. It's been explanation. It's been showing us who he is, and then he gets to this moment, and we're going to see finally what he's going to do. And it says that he goes around to the synagogues which are in Galilee. And he does it in the power of the Spirit. When the, the gospel writer gives us, uh, Luke gives us kind of the, um, the explicit picture about what he does when he gets into those synagogues, he chooses Isaiah chapter 61. And he stands up in the synagogue as all kind of... Um, Jewish males who were in right standing uh, had a right to do. You could stand up and you could teach. And so Jesus 
does if he chooses this chapter, Isaiah 61. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives, recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. This is one of the servant songs of Isaiah. I'll I'll tell you in just a moment um, what those are. But for now, let's do a very brief history of Israel. So so children, young people, and others, uh, this is where I'm going to need your help. This is like an illuminated manuscript. I don't even know what it is, but it looks cool. Uh, it's probably all those names can't be read. Um, so, so I want to just, I, we're, we're going to need to kind of ramp up to understand Isaiah 61, to understand what is Jesus is saying. We're going to need to understand a little bit of Israel and the world that he's living in. So, so I want to just run through this quickly. So kids, I'm going to give you some names, and I want you to make the sound of that person, kind of what they do, right? So like um, Samuel is a judge, right? And judges have gavels. You guys know what gavels are? Those little wooden hammers, right? So when I say Samuel, I want you to go bang, bang, bang. Okay, Caden, Emmaus, Miriam, Miguel, Peter, you're going to say out loud, bang, bang, bang. All right, Rosalie, other children? Okay, good. All right. So when I say Moses, Moses went up on a mountain and he talked to God and at the top of the mountain there was thunder and lightning. So when I say Moses, I want you to go, right? Make a thunder sound, all right? Let's think, who else, who else do we know from Israel? You guys remember any other big names? Yeah, Mo- yeah we'll get to Jesus. <laughs> a plus child of mine. <laughs> uh, so we got, uh, let's see, Moses, Samuel. We're going to talk about David. And David wrote songs, okay? So when, and he sang them, they were called the Psalms. We don't know what they sounded like, but we know what the words were. They're the book of the Psalms. So when we say David, I want you to go, oh, all right? You know how to do that, Emmaus. I know you do, okay? You do too, Miriam. Okay, so um, let's see. We got, we got Moses, we got Samuel, we got David. Who else are we going to talk about? We're going to talk about Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar was a bad king. But he actually did something God wanted him to do. So, um, so he took Israel into exile. So when, when I say Nebuchadnezzar, you're going to go, X. All right? Can you do that, Miguel? X. All right. And then last, uh, I know this isn't everybody. Oh, I'm going to talk about a prophet, Elijah. So when I say Elijah, you're going to go, thus saith the Lord. All right? Thus saith the Lord. Yeah, you got it, Peter. All right, so let's go. Very brief history of Israel. Here we go. Um, Step one, uh, Abraham, the patriarch. There's no sound for him. He's just like way back there. You got to mention him, okay? (laughs) Abraham kind of gets the whole thing going. He's here at the very beginning of the story. All right? Very good. Next, step two. Comes along Moses, the lawgiver. Okay, what did we say for Moses? Yeah, thunder and lightning, right? Moses goes up on the mountain, and he gets these tablets called the law. God writes down some rules for how to live a life that's going to be pleasing to God, right? And so that's, that's Moses. That is step one, all right? Next comes Samuel. 
I forgot to account for Josh I, um, in this whole plan. <laughs> All right, so, so Moses kind of gets the law, and he brings the people into the land, and that's that, that Abraham got from God, and that's all well and good. Uh, you see the little gavel here. I know that the color kind of washes it out. Um, what, what happens once they get into the law is they start to break all those rules that Moses gave them. And so Samuel is one of these judges. He's kind of the last and the best judge who shows them how they ought to live. Okay? He walks around. He solves people's problems. You know, he knocks some heads together. He does a few things. Uh, but he listens to God and he leads the people of Israel through some difficult times. That's what we mean by judge. Okay. Wait, back up, back up, back up. Thank you. Was that you, Tom? When we have auditions for the worship team, you're, you're not invited. Uh, but, but you knew that. You knew. All right. So, um, yeah, so, so next, here we go. David, ready? Oh, 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 oh. oh wow, that was actually pretty nice. Oh. Um, very heavenly. Uh, yeah, so, so Samuel... Kind of, like we say, he kind of leads and directs them, shows them how to live in the land. And then God gives them this King David. And the difference is now they're not just a disconnected mass of 12 different groups and families and tribes that are fighting with each other. Now because of David, they're all under one king, right? They're all under one ruler. They're like, we're not just 50 different states. Now we're one nation, right? We're not just 12 tribes. Now we're one kingdom, okay? So, so things are kind of going good for Israel at this point. All right, the next one, Elijah. Do we remember what we said during the prophet? Peter got it, right? Thus saith the Lord, right? And you can kind of say it with that voice. All right, so ready? Here we go. Elijah. Oh, man, good. All right, so, so David's the first king, but there's a bunch of other kings who come along the way. And the problem with kings, the good thing about kings is they get everybody united underneath them. The bad thing about kings is they get everybody united underneath them. And so if the king is good, that's good. If the king is bad, that's bad, and you have to have somebody who can speak to the king. So you got to have somebody like Elijah. Thus saith the Lord. Very good. Okay. Uh, you got to have somebody like Elijah who's listening to God, who's going to do what God tells him, even when it, that is going to just ruin his life. <laughs> and it does for Elijah. It just ruins his life. He ends up living out in the desert, eating whatever birds bring him. Okay? Um, it's not a great plan for most people, but it's what God needed Elijah to do. All right? Okay, next is going to be Nebuchadnezzar. So he, uh, very good. Ready? Nebuchadnezzar? Very good. Okay, so Nebuchadnezzar is a king, and he's not even Jewish, right? He's not a part of the people of Israel, but he comes in, and, and Israel is still, even though they have all the prophets, and even though they have good and bad kings, they're still not doing what they're supposed to do. They're still not following the law. They're still not living like they should have lived in the land. And so God finally brings in this guy named Nebuchadnezzar, who takes them into exile, right? He takes them into exile far, far away in a place called Babylon. They have to suffer the consequences for their unfaithfulness. They have to suffer the consequences for what they've done wrong, right? It is a hard day. It is a kind of a bad day for Israel, right? Now, I don't have a, a sound for this next guy. It's like writing. He, his sound should be writing. So, so if everybody can just kind of look down really quick and pretend you're taking notes, okay, as soon as we go. Okay, there we go. Ready? Here we go. Uh, go. Oh, wait, that's not the slide. I forgot about that slide. Okay, this is, 
This is what it looked like when they went into exile, although this is actually from when the Romans did it, but never mind. Um, uh, how they got the temple destroyed, and then the people came in and they took all of the precious, wonderful things out of the temple, and they took it far, far away to a land that it did not belong in, right? All of those wonderful, beautiful things that were inside God's house. All right, next slide. Okay, so, so here's the problem. Here's a guy named Ezekiel. This is, the, this is why I'm telling you this whole very brief story of Israel, because this is what we need to understand. They went through all of that with Moses and Samuel and David and Elijah and Nebuchadnezzar, and now you've got a people of Israel who know that they're supposed to follow the rules, who know that they're supposed to live the way God wants them to live. They've heard the prophets say, you are not living right. You are not worshiping God. You're not worshiping God the way he wants to be worshiped. You're not loving people. All of this. But here's the problem. In order to follow the law, they needed a temple. But the temple had been destroyed because they hadn't been following the law. Right? So how can they be faithful again? They are in a bind. They're in a really tricky spot. Somebody comes and says, you need to go to church. But you can't go to church because you've spent so long not going to church that now all the churches are closed. So now you're like, I want to go to church, but I'm looking on Google and there's no churches. There's no place for me to show up. That's the situation that Israel's in. They're far off in Babylon. They cannot worship in the temple. How are they going to be faithful to God? This is really, really hard. So there's a prophet named Ezekiel, who's a prophet, he's also a priest. And he has these amazing visions from God in Ezekiel 1, you should go read them. He's a priest without a temple. So this guy right here, he would have been a priest, he's got those fancy clothes, okay? This would have been right here, this is the presence of God, this is the incense that they were supposed to burn and the smoke that would go up out of the, uh, as the prayers this was the table of presence with the showbread. It was like a meal that they were going to sit down and eat with the Lord. Right? It kind of, you kind of see how it all sorts to kind of click in together, but now the temple is gone. And so, so what did they do? Israel did something really creative and really good, actually. During this time when they're in exile, you have the priests and the Pharisees. So go to that next slide. Um, the Pharisees, a lot of us know from the Gospels, right? They are these people who are always getting into it with Jesus. But where do the Pharisees get their start? Where do they begin? Anybody know? In Babylon, when they're in exile. That's where they get their start. Why? Because Israel wants to be faithful to God, but they can't worship in the temple because there's no temple. So how are they going to be faithful? They learn to read the book. That's where Israel becomes a place, a people who say, we are about this book. We are a people who study. We are a people who learn. We are a people who memorize our memory verses. We're a people who go to Bible quizzing. And we are a people who learn this stuff because when we learn the scriptures, that is when and that is how we can be faithful to God. So everybody who was in Sunday school this morning and we sat and we went through the book well, part of the book of Jude, right? That is in some way an inheritance of the Pharisees who taught us that study can be worship. Study 
can be a way for us to be faithful to the Lord. All right? They were studying for their life, right? Now, they brought that back to Israel, to the land, after they came back from exile. They brought that with them, right? So, here's what I need you to see in order to understand Luke 4. There's two places to worship God if you're an Israelite in Jesus' day. The one is obviously the temple, right? Where all the sacrifices go on. That's where Jesus was when he was 12, talking to the experts. Where's the other? Church? Not quite church. Huh? No, not everywhere. No. Well, yes, but where do you go to study? Close. The synagogue, just like you all said. Okay, you go to the synagogue to study. You, you gather together in this place called the synagogue. So you sacrifice in the temple, but you, you study and you, you pour yourself out over the words in the synagogue, okay? The priests run the temple. The Pharisees, I'm simplifying, run the synagogue, all right? Okay, last hero, ready? All right. This is, who said that? Did you say Ezra? Miguel, are you, that was awesome, man. You nailed it. Ezra comes back, Ezra comes back from Babylon, from exile, and Ezra is both a priest, the temple, and a scribe, the the precursors of the Pharisees, the ones who wrote the word and who studied the word. He's both a priest and a scribe, he's teaching them how we can be faithful to the Torah within the renewed land, within the renewed temple, as God brings us back and restores us. Okay? So, this is what I need you to see. It is both a word-based kind of worship and a sacrificial worship. It is a word-based, study-based, book-based worship and a table-based worship. And Jesus, in his ministry, embraces both. Jesus, the 12-year-old, goes to the temple and hangs out in the temple and calls it his father's house. And he sees the problems with it, but he embraces it. Jesus, in his ministry, goes to the synagogue and reads from the scrolls there at the synagogue. He says, I am the word, and he also says, I am the lamb. I am the sacrifice. Okay? So, hey. Scribal worship, studies the Torah, focused on the dispersed community. You know, you don't all have to be in Jerusalem. People come to God through the word of God. Priestly worship, follows the Torah, focused on the physically gathered worship in the temple, reconciles the people to God through ritual and sacrifice. All right. Let me go on. Here's the Messiah. Let me, I need to give you a very brief history of the Messiah as well. All right. During the exile, while they were in Babylon, ex, okay, Israel began to long for a certain kind of Messiah. They needed somebody who was going to save them. And, and so Isaiah, during that time, he starts to write these what we call servant songs. There were these passages in the book of Isaiah that said, I'm going to send you a servant, and this is what he's going to be like. They will say, you'll recognize all of this kind of stuff. They say things like, a bruised reed he will not break. You know that? He will be completely obedient, and he'll also be vindicated by God. 
He will be wise, but he will be humble, despised, rejected, grieved, pierced for our transgressions, stricken, wounded for us. Isaiah 52 and 53, those are servant songs. And also Isaiah tells us, this servant, this Messiah will proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. What is the year of the Lord's favor? What's that? Okay, that's good when we're saved. What, what is the Messiah looking for? What is he going to proclaim? What is he going to bring about? Well, the law, the Torah, had this thing called the year of Jubilee. Right? Every 50 years in Israel, you were, even if you, had, if you had slaves, you're supposed to set them free. If you bought land, it was supposed to go back to the person that it was originally came from, right? Everything, it was this big reset button in Israel. So that the way that God gave the land when Moses and Joshua came into the land was supposed to be reset every 50 years. So you didn't have generational poverty. You didn't have generational slavery. You didn't have this like, generational kind of inequality and oppression that would set in in the people of Israel because that would not look good for God. If Israel starts to look like every other nation in the world, how does that proclaim any goodness about God? The year of the Lord's favor starts to look like all those things that they wanted the world to be. Restored temple, Life, good life in the land, both the word of God and a fellowship communion with God. And Israel, after never actually practicing the year of Jubilee, shows up, Christ shows up and says, it's me in Luke 4. I'm here. I'm here and I'm bringing you the life that you have longed for. I'm going to give the blind back their sight I'm good news to the poor. I am liberty for the captives. I'm liberty for those who are oppressed. I'm here to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. But the key here is how he starts that passage. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. See, you don't just set the oppressed free because you want to set the oppressed free. <laughs> Right? And you don't just liberate the captives because you feel like it. Those things happen when the Spirit of the Lord makes them happen. The release of slaves takes place as the Spirit of the Lord makes it take place. The return of the ancestral lands happens when the Spirit of the Lord makes it happen. The blind receive their sight when the Spirit of the Lord make the blind receive their sight. Everyone, including Gentiles on the earth, is involved in this restoration of honor and glory. In a lot of ways in our society, as I think about this, it's easy to make this fit a particular narrative. Right? It's easy to make the liberation of the oppressed and the captives and the recovery of sight of the blind, it's easy to make that fit a particular cultural narrative. A narrative that kind of looks for easy equality where everybody essentially has the same access and the same materials. What's tougher 
is when we begin to recognize that the calling on the church is actually higher than the calling that's on society. That the church ought to be a place, just like Israel should have been a place, that shone forth the glory and the love and the mercy of God. The church should be a place where this stuff starts to happen. It should be the place where this happens first. So that the rest of the world says, yeah, we know we got problems and we're looking to the church to try to figure out how to deal with them. To use Paul's language, everybody has a place in the body of Christ. No matter how high or how low, no matter how honorable or dishonorable. And in fact, he says, the more dishonorable you are, the more honor the church gives you. That the weaker you are, the more the church seeks to lift you up. The less presentable you are, the more the church makes sure that you are treated with respect and care. And that's exactly opposite to the way of the world. Which takes people who are weak and vulnerable and uses their vulnerability against them. Things are different, should be different, must be different in the church. And I could say all kinds of things about society, but I kind of figure out, I, I figure I ought to learn to walk before I try to run. I think we should begin with the church. To what extent have we sought to be a place that exhibits and shows forth and practices the year of the Lord's favor. Because that is when we are saved. When the Lord's favor, His grace, His amazing grace is poured out on us. But, but if that just exists in kind of the spiritual and doesn't work its way into the material, then we have not really experienced God's grace. If we say my sins are forgiven and I don't actually live with greater generosity than before I met the Lord, then have we actually been saved or transformed? Think about Zacchaeus. What is it that happens to Zacchaeus? He sees the Lord, the Lord comes into his house, and he turns around and gives all his stuff away. I've never been able to make the math of Zacchaeus make sense. He gives away four times of everything he took. What? His life is turned upside down. His life becomes about generosity and pouring out rather than taking in because of what Jesus has done to him. And this can only happen when the Spirit of the Lord is upon us. This only happens when the Spirit of the Lord is upon his people. I've been wrestling with this very brief history of Israel, very brief history of the Messiah, and, and I guess kind of this very brief history of the church. Because we have a tendency to divide and separate the parts of the gospel that we like from the parts that we, we don't really like. You know, and, and we've got our church here, and there's a much bigger church with probably better music around the corner, and there's you know, other churches kind of go deeper into the neighborhoods here. You go up onto Coloma Road, man, you just, you got the run of them there. There's like 12, right? They're on Coloma, and they're all named Cordova, this or that, right? We've got all kinds of divisions and, and 
all the stuff Paul says not to have in 1 Corinthians, we've got all of that in the church. You can worship in the style that you want to worship, with the kind of people that you want to worship at like, you know, a, a social level that's comfortable for you. Or in an ethnicity that, you know, it's that's sort of what you're used to, or people who use the sort of language that you're we got all kinds of divisions. Not just theological divisions in the church. And I wrestle with it. It makes me wonder, what is worship? And I go back to that idea of Israel. That worship is both word and study and sacrifice, communion, the table. I think what I'm struggling with in that is that we're not invited merely into redemption. We're not just invited into, you know, not suffering for our sins. We are invited into salvation. We are invited into the ever unfolding grace of God that does not end. When you come into God's presence, it's not a one-time thing. It's something that sees you, that even sees through you. And it begins to transform and change you from the inside out. And so Christians over the last few centuries have, have split up into a few camps. You've got the word camp. That's, we're more in that camp, like evangelicals, mostly Protestant. We really focus on Scripture. You guys are all still sitting here after I've already been talking for a half hour. That tells you you're in the word camp, okay? If this was a Catholic church, everybody would have gotten up and left already. They're like, he's talking way, 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 way too long, okay? We're in this kind of word Protestant evangelical camp. And then you kind of have the table camp largely Catholic, uh, there's, there's other groups there as well, who so their focus is, is almost exclusively on the table. Everything leads to and dives in there. And then I kind of think of it as like a bonus. You got the Quakers and the Pentecostals. They're the spirit camp, right? Um, and, and they're sort of like in and through all of that. And even just the fact that I can say that there are different camps in the body of Christ, I am sure actually grieves the spirit. Because it's a false division of what God has given us. It's a false division of his fullness. That he said, I am the word and I've revealed, I've given you my word so that you might know me and hold me and study me and come to me with all of your mind and all of your heart. But I've also poured myself out to you physically. This is my body. This is my blood. Eat and drink every time you are together. Worship is all of God poured out we just have to find a way to live in it. And we do that as we pay attention and remain sensitive to and open to the Spirit. Sometimes I think of them as both subjective and objective. You know, the words we say at the table never change. They're objective. In some ways, it doesn't matter what my feelings are about them. Words I say in a sermon have never been the same. I've never preached the exact same sermon twice. They're subjective. It sort of changes and flexes and moves. My point is that both of them actually rely on the Spirit. Luke 4.14, Jesus does this in the power of the Spirit. 1 Corinthians 12.13, Paul tells them to drink the Spirit. Nehemiah 8's description of worship is he stands up in front of the whole assembly of Israel and reads the law to them. Something that we would think of as utterly kind of boring and mindless. 
what is their response? They mourn and they grieve. And then Ezra and Nehemiah come in and say, no, 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 don't mourn and grieve. This is good news. Go, celebrate, give each other presents, eat the fat, drink the sweet wine. Right? This ought to be joyful for you. And so here's my point. A life of worship is rooted in the life of the Spirit. It's going to be objective. It's going to be solid. It's going to be in those things that we have not created for ourselves, but we have received from God. At the same time, a life of worship is rooted in the Spirit, and it's going to be subjective, which means I can't come to it the exact same way every time. It includes my emotions. It includes my feelings. It includes my mourning and my joy. And it's going to confront everything in my culture that keeps people in bondage. As I was going over this last night, for some reason I was reminded of the, the churches that Cody and I went to in college, two different churches. Both a lot of people from our, you know, um, upper middle class <laughs> university. You go to Point Loma, everybody goes to Point Loma, and it's, it's kind of a running joke among students because it's just a matter of time until somebody says, how do you get any homework done? It's so beautiful here, right? Because it's right by the ocean, and so the sun's always going down, and the, the beach looks nice, and all that kind of stuff, right? Whenever I go to San Diego, I have very little desire to go to Point Loma's campus. You know where I want to go? I want to go to the corner of 36th and National. And it's a rundown neighborhood. You got to watch your hubcaps. I'm not joking. <laughs> um, and and it's just kind of a, a dollar store across the street and an elementary school. But that corner is so beautiful to me. It's so beautiful because I've seen and known the lives that have come and gone from that corner that have been a part of that church. I've seen and heard the words that have been preached at that place. I've seen and witnessed the faithfulness of God in that place and the people who have worked in the container gardens in the back and Mario, you know, plunging the, <laughs> the plumbing like every two days it seemed like to keep that place running on basically chewing gum and shoestring. But it's the beauty of, the, of that church and the witness of that place. That's what I want to be around. That, that's where I want to pour my life into the beauty of Point Loma is fine. It's going to take care of itself, right? They have an endowment and all that stuff. What I'm a lot more concerned about is how do I get into that place where God is? Where oppression ceases. Where payday lenders don't have a hold on people's lives. Where abusive families don't have the last word in who somebody becomes. Where you see an end to slavery and racism, not because a law changed far away in some outside place, but because people see one another for who they are and the very image of God that has been built into each one. Where spiritual oppression is broken because our habits are no longer defined by sin, where pride and hate and sexual desire and greed do not tell us who we are. So to me, Shelltown, the corner of 36th and National, is a whole lot more beautiful than Point Loma. Because I've seen their life 
in the Spirit. I can make a case for why we have to have all of our worship focused on the communion table. I can make a case for why we have to have all of our worship focused on the Bible. But if we don't do it with life in the Spirit, then none of it matters. If we don't do it with the Spirit alive and active in us, then none of it matters. And, and I, in some ways, I don't know how to describe this to you because and so many of you have shown it to me. So it, it's not that. It's describing this to somebody who has not seen or lived life in the Spirit is like trying to describe the color red to somebody who's colorblind. You can say it's red, but, you know, it's red like apples, and all of a sudden I'm seeing all this red out here in people's sweatshirts. <laughs> it's red like blood or whatever, but they, they don't know. You can't tell them, well, it's a warm color. It kind of, you know, it makes cows angry for some reason. Like, that's, they don't have any concept. Describing life in the Spirit to somebody who has not received it, it's like trying to ask a dead person to get up and walk. And so what we need to do is just recognize that this kind of life is a miracle. It's a miracle that God works in us. It's a miracle that we can know and do these things simply because God says he will do these things in us. That lost song we sang today, O Thou in Whose Presence, it's a little bit of a skewer of a hymn, but and the guy who wrote it, um, he actually died when he was my age, um, right about 34, 35 years old. He left a three or wife and three or four kids behind, not planning on going anywhere. Um, we don't know hardly anything about his life except that he suffered, except that he died of an illness at a young age. And I would just invite you to think about those words. We're going to sing them as we come to the table today. O thou in whose presence my soul takes delight. On whom in affliction I call. My comfort, my day, my song in the night. My hope, my salvation, my all. The last verse. Dear shepherd, I hear and will follow thy call. I know the sweet sound of thy voice. Restore and defend me, for thou art my all. In thee I will ever rejoice. If there's some part of you that needs to be raised from the dead today, if you come to the table with that hope, with that desire, with that cry in your heart that says, Lord, show me what this life in the Spirit is, would you pray with me? <coughs> Jesus, you have enabled us to come to you. You've enabled us to worship you. You've enabled us to worship you in your word. You've enabled us to worship you in your table. You've not left us alone. And you've not abandoned us to our own devices. Lord God, we pray that by your mercy, by your grace, we would know your presence. We would live this life in your spirit. And we would walk out of this place, Lord, knowing what it is to be raised from the dead and living in response to you in your name.